0: Thank you very much. Thanks guys, thank you, thank you, thank you. Morning, hope you're doing well. It was a chilly one this morning, wasn't it? It was cold. There were, there were two jobs to be done this morning in our house. One was to de-ice the car, and the other was to pick up frozen dog poo in the garden. Now, if you're a dog owner, you know you wait for a frozen morning and you go and pick up dog poo. Now, I'd just like to say that um, my wife chose the latter of the two options Never have I felt more loved than I have this morning as she carried her bag of dog poo through the house and put it in the bin. There's a happy thought. Let's move on from that, shall we? Let's open the Bible together. Now, uh, if you've got a Bible, turn to Mark in chapter 10. Um, If you want to hear the story of the supernatural husky, I haven't got time to tell it, so ask someone who's here at the first service. It's a great story. I'll tell it to you another time. Um, But we are uh, looking at this issue of serving, serving like Jesus this morning, and I just want to give you the punchline before we kind of get into the Word of God and look at some things together. The the, the kind of punchline, the driving thing that we're going after today is, I want you and I to become more like Jesus. This morning is not a kind of a sales campaign or a marketing advertising campaign to get you to sign up to serve on a team. The goal, the end result is that you and I would become more like Jesus, and the reality is right across this room, many of us are serving all sorts of different incredible ways in, in the marketplace, in our families, our neighborhoods, in church. And my goal for you is that your joy would increase in your serving. Okay, well, I'll try this side. I think you, you need a bit more joy, I think. Uh, my, 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 my hope is that your joy increases in serving and that you become more like Jesus in the ways that you're already pouring yourselves out. But may, Yeah, thank you, thank you, very good, very, very very good. Yeah, top of the class. Um, but for, for others of you, maybe you've you not yet found your place to serve, and my prayer for you is that you would become more like Jesus, and that you would serve where he's placed you, because that is the end result. Because if you get connected to Jesus, I won't have to persuade you to serve. You know, If you require me to persuade you to serve to serve, then the likelihood is you'll try and you, know, you may stop. But actually, if you're connected to him, then I won't even have to persuade you. (laughs) Because you get connected to the servant king, and you cannot help but pour out your life for others. That's the way it works. And we're going to look at a story today where Jesus really begins to unpack what servant leadership looks like in the kingdom. And uh, it's an amazing moment, and uh, amazing for a number of reasons. But we're just going to read together from verse 35 in Mark chapter 10. And this is what we read. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which has nothing to do with the magic roundabout, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request? He asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Oh yes, they replied, we are able. Clueless, absolutely clueless. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from the bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. God has prepared those places for the ones that he has chosen. Just note there, those seats do exist. Verse 41. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. And Holy Spirit, I praise. we look at your word that you would do good to us. Let your word change us, provoke us, inspire us, fill us with joy, as we serve Jesus this morning. Come and do us good, we pray in Jesus' name. Now, one of the reasons I love the Bible is the Bible is such an honest book, and the disciples, many of whom wrote portions of Scripture, kept the stories in where they were acting like complete numpties. Now, numpty is from the Greek word numpte, which means idiot, right? And there are frequently moments in scripture where the disciples just they they don't know what they're doing they don't know what they're asking they they haven't really changed yet and aren't you just glad for those stories Uh, how many of you still feel like a little bit of a numpty every now and again you know when you come to matters of faith we don't always know what we're talking about and the the truth is Jesus doesn't call perfect people (laughs) anyone happy about that he doesn't call perfect people but he perfects people that he calls that's the way he works. He chooses you and then he changes you on the road. He changes you on the journey. And I love how patient Jesus is with the disciples when they've got foot and mouth disease all the time and they're just kind of trying to work out how does this work. And this is one of those kind of, you know, the disciples in Numptyville stories because they haven't quite yet clued into the way things work in Jesus' kingdom. And so they sidle up to Jesus, James and John, the sons of thunder, the, the sons of Zebedee. And they're like, Jesus, boss, I've got a favor to ask you. Jesus, like, okay, hit me with it. And it, you know, it could have been anything. It could have been something brilliant like, you know, I wanna, we want to know how to serve the poor more effectively. We, we want to know how to really pray for the sick. We want to know how to share the kingdom. It could have been any of those things, but this is their request. Jesus, we want to be the most important people in heaven forever. <laughs> what do you think? Could you, could you do it? Could you make it happen? That's their request. You know, they're like, we, we want to sit in the Hall of Fame seats in heaven forever. We want to be in the seats where everyone wants a selfie with us. We want those moments, like above Moses, above David, above Elijah, above the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus, you can be top dog, but we want to be left and right. <laughs> That's what they're asking for. I mean, complete numpties. And Jesus is brilliant. He's so patient because he takes this opportunity, he sees what's underneath their question. And he begins to change their paradigm of thinking about how leadership works in his kingdom. He seizes this opportunity. But let's give them at least some credit. Let's start with something that they did actually get right. Because in verse 37, James and John say to Jesus, When you sit on your glorious throne, that bit they got right. (laughs) They'd seen something about Jesus. When you sit on your glorious throne, they had somehow managed to see beyond the carpenter from Nazareth, and they could see that Jesus was the king who was one day going to sit on the throne and rule over the entire cosmos forever and ever and ever. Somehow these fishermen from Galilee had seen that about Jesus. They knew that he was going to sit on the glorious throne. And one of the reasons that we know they'd seen that is because they had left everything to follow Jesus. I mean earlier in Mark's gospel Jesus is passing by the sea of Galilee he sees James and John with their father Zebedee they're fishing and Jesus says follow me. It says at once they left their father Zebedee and they followed Jesus. Now that is not just a passing line. I mean that means they left everything. They left their livelihood, their respectability, they left their family They left any sense of social status they might have. They probably gave up their family inheritance. They literally, they put everything on the line for this man, Jesus. Because they could see, you are the king. You are the king. And so we are throwing all our eggs in one basket. We are leaving everything behind. Our old attitudes, our old priorities, our old passions. We're leaving that all behind. We're leaving it to have you. You are the pearl of great price, and we are selling everything that we might have you, because you are going to sit on a glorious throne. That's what they'd seen about Jesus, breathtaking revelation. This is what John Piper says about seeing the glory of Christ. He says, if you know that a company's stock is going to take off and go through the roof, you buy that stock and not the competitors. If you know this building is going to stand after the storm and no others, you get into this building and not the others. And if you know that Jesus is going to reign in glory in the end over every rival, then you follow Jesus and not his rivals. And some are not following Jesus, and so don't have it right yet about his glory. Nobody really believes this who isn't following Jesus. The truth is Jesus is the one whose investment outstrips every other investment you can make. He is the building that is going to outlast every other building. Do you know what? Jesus isn't worried or anxious about Brexit. He's not worried about walls getting built in Mexico. He's not worried about this power or that power. He's not worried about this tribe or this coming or that going. He is the king forever and ever and ever. The question is, are all your eggs in his basket? (laughs) Does he have all of you? Have you done the equivalent of leave your nets behind and follow him? I mean, run after him. I mean, throw everything behind Jesus. So people around this world right today are literally giving up everything still to follow him. There are estimates of between 50 and 100,000 every year who are martyred for their faith around the world. Persecution amongst Christian groups is on the rise, not on the wane. Our brothers and sisters right around the world are literally leaving their nets to follow Jesus because they know he sits on the glorious throne. What are you giving up for Jesus? Because I tell you, discipleship is costly. If following Jesus requires no sacrifice in your life, I would question, are you really following the right king? To follow him requires leaving something that you might have him. Leaving your old thoughts about money and sex and power, for example. What does Jesus think about those things? I'm putting all my eggs in his basket. What he says goes. I'm trusting the one who's going to sit on the glorious throne. Now, one of my favorite stories, I've told it before, is of William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, who saw just incredible success amongst the poor, particularly in London. And saw scores and scores of kind of working class people come to faith in Christ and start to see the kingdom break out. And his success was so great that Queen Victoria called for William Booth to come and tell her the secret of his success. And so she sent the golden carriage from Buckingham Palace to pick up William Booth. But he refused to get in it because he said, if the poor can't get in the carriage, neither will I. And so he walked to Buckingham Palace and was two hours late for his appointment with the Queen And when he got there and he's standing before Queen Victoria and she says, Mr. Booth, tell me the secret of your success. He got out some chalk from his top pocket and he drew a circle on the floor of the palace. He stepped inside the circle and he said, Dear Queen, the secret of my success is this. Everything inside this circle belongs fully to God. (laughs) That's it right there. Leave your nets. Follow him. Is all of you inside the circle. Because actually, serving starts with understanding this. I serve at the king's pleasure. I serve at his pleasure. My life is no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. All of me needs to be inside the circle. Could you say that's true of you this morning? Is all of you inside the circle. And of course, this is the beautiful thing that they did get right. It kind of goes downhill from here. <laughs> what do they get wrong? Well, Certainly one of the major things they got wrong was their understanding of leadership and glory. (laughs) Leadership and glory. They were very much kind of transporting into their question to Jesus the understanding of leadership that they saw around them in their culture. And the other disciples we read here were indignant when they heard the question. Not because they thought it was a wrong question, they just wished they'd asked it first. (laughs) You know, they were like, rats, we want to sit on the right and the left as well. Because they were in a culture where the strong bullied the weak. Where if you were emperor, you could order a genocide, you could crucify thousands in one day. It was said of Emperor Nero, in one day he crucified 6,000 people by the side of a road. And that's the culture they were living in. Y- your life was cheap. If you were top dog, if you were top of the tree, you exercised your power, your authority, and you did whatever the hell you wanted. And that's the leadership model. And so when they come to Jesus and say, we'd like to sit on your right and the left, that's the paradigm they're thinking of. They're thinking, we want to be top dog so that we can, we can call the shots. You know, and we know that because on another occasion in Mark's gospel, James and John, these same guys, they're walking through a Samaritan village that refuses to welcome Jesus. And they get very upset on Jesus' behalf. And they're like, Jesus, do you want us to call cool down fire from heaven to consume them? In other words, genocide is the answer to people ignoring Jesus. That that was their mindset. And so Jesus begins to take this faulty understanding and just rework it and say, guys, this is not how leadership works in the kingdom. This is not what it looks like. In fact, it's the polar opposite. And he begins to drop these bombshells into their thinking. And here's one of them. That leadership is a baptism of suffering, not a pathway to power. That doesn't sound like very good news, but that's the truth. If you want to lead in Jesus' kingdom, it's going to cost you. It's going to require sacrifice. It's going to require that you give up things. And for Jesus, of course, the context for him was drinking the cup of suffering of the cross. He is in the shadow of the cross when he's saying this. He's saying, actually, leadership is not a pathway to the top of the tree. Actually, it's an exercise in giving up your rights to empower other people. Oh, that's a really good point, that. Leadership is an exercise in giving up your rights so that you can empower other people. Are there any husbands in the room? Your job, no husbands, that was amazing. There are no husbands (laughs) in the room right now. There's one over there, thank you, sir. (laughs) Husbands, do, do you know what your job is? Your job is not to be top of the tree. Your job is to empower your wife to serve. That's how it works. Jesus is saying, listen, leadership is not a pathway to power. It's a baptism in suffering. You give up your rights so that someone else can thrive. There isn't any room for selfishness in marriage, as an example. And then he goes on, he says, also, glory is about becoming a servant of everybody, not a master of many. (laughs) like, This is what greatness looks like. Lay down your life. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. If you want to be great, at great in the kingdom, then lay down your life for other people. And as if to emphasize these two points, he says in verse 45, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man. Now, that is a really important clue as to the significance of that sentence. Even the Son of Man. Because for your average Jewish hearer who understood prophetic scriptures that they would have heard at synagogue every week, that they would have talked about in their homes, they would have understood something about that phrase, even the Son of Man. And in fact, we know from Jesus' life that Son of Man was the title that he most frequently used of himself. He used it 78 different times across the Gospels. More than any other title, he says, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. And this is one of those occasions. He says, even the Son of Man. And immediately, James and John and the other disciples would have been thinking back to synagogue class and thinking about the prophet Daniel. Because in Daniel, we get the first mention of the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is a figure that Daniel the prophet sees in a vision at night. And this is what we read in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God, and was presented before him. And to him, to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. What Daniel is seeing here is a messianic figure, a savior. That would one day come from heaven to make all things new. And to him, dominion and glory and honor and a kingdom would be given that would never ever pass away. This is a key messianic text in Jewish scripture. And so in synagogue, they would have heard this reading from Daniel 7. The son of man one day is going to come from heaven and he is going to rescue this planet. And to him, all people will serve him. He will be given dominion and power and sovereign authority. The son of man was a powerful, the most powerful figure that the Jewish people were hoping and longing for. And so when Jesus starts his sentence, even the son of man, they would have been able to finish his sentence for him. Because they knew this passage very well. The son of man will have dominion and glory and a kingdom that will never fade. Peoples from every nation will worship him. They would have better to finish the, the sentence for him. And yet that's not where Jesus goes. He says, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. Even Messiah didn't come to pick up his rights but to lay his rights down even messiah has come to drink the cup of suffering even messiah has come to not be the master of many but the servant of all i mean this is stunning this is a stunning revelation for the disciples. It's a completely different way of thinking that God's greatness and glory are actually seen in self-sacrifice. <laughs> Jesus is saying, this is what God is like. He's not like Nero. He's a self-sacrificing God. He's a God who serves. The creator of all is the servant of all. first should be last the last should be first the greatest among you shall be the servant of all if he had a mic that would have been a drop the mic moment for Jesus (laughs) it really would have been (laughs) and of course there are some beautiful things that we know about serving I just want to mention four things truths about servant leadership and the first is this that serving reveals the nature of God and puts him on display one of the reasons that we serve actually is to provide people with a mirror so they can see what God actually looks like. I've said it before, but most people won't turn first to one of the four gospels in the Bible. They will turn to your life. They will see what, what does God look like by their connection with you, in your workplace, in your conversations. In the incidentals in life, in the way that you handle your humor, in the way that you honor other people, these things that seem incidental actually are all mirrors that are reflecting something about God. And I want to suggest to you that Jesus didn't serve just because it was expedient in the moment. He served because God is the eternal servant. Hebrews 1 says that God is the exact representation of God's being. He is the radiance of the Father's glory. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, you look at the life of Jesus. And in this moment, Jesus is actually saying, God is eternally a servant. Uh, One theology writer says this about the love of God. He says, God eternally gives of himself to others. How would you define God's love? I think that's one of the best definitions I've ever found. God eternally gives of himself to others. What does love look like? It doesn't look like taking. It looks like giving of yourself to others. This is what God is actually like. The question is, when people connect to you and I, do they get that mirror image of the servant king? Or do they see someone who's just filling a chair, just attending? Or do they see someone who's laying their life down for other people? that they might see Jesus. You know, and this stuff matters. And I, I suggest you even the stuff that you do in secret matters. In fact, it, it matters probably even more because serving primarily is not just about looking good to you. It's about actually reflecting God back to God. Do you know, there's something powerful about serving when nobody else is looking. You know, when you walk into the kitchen and someone else's dishes are there, sometimes it's right to ask them to do their dishes, but other times it's right just to hoover it up yourself and get on with it. Because in that moment, when you choose to serve, you are declaring to principalities and powers, "This is what God's like." You know, I was in a, I was in the park uh, a few months ago, praying. Park nearby, and across the other side of the park, there was this guy who was drinking a massive can of beer, and he took a massive swig, and then he just threw it on the floor, and like loads of liquid came out of the can, and you could tell there was loads of stuff in there. And he just threw it, and you know, in those kind of moments, you're like, that's, "This is my park. You're not allowed to do that." That's outrageous behavior. I thought, I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. I'm going to find that guy and ask him to pick up his litter. At which point, I felt God speaks to me and says, Phil, I want you to pick it up. I was like, it's not even my rubbish. It's not even my mess. At which point, the Holy Spirit said, Phil, I clear up other people's mess every single day. Mm-hmm. I want you to serve like me. Mm-hmm. And it was humbling. Going and picking up someone else's em- half-empty beer can and putting it in the trash. But it was a lesson. Learn to serve when no one else is looking is in those moments you declare to principalities and powers this is what god's like he clears up st- stuff that's not his mess he does it every single day this is what the father is like what is your life reflecting to other people you know I think about how many of you guys have ever served on the homeless project here or you serve on fm just just When you guys choose to serve, you are creating a mirror to people who cannot always give back to you. This is what God is like. He's the servant king who gives away to people who can't give back to him. You are reflecting a reality about the eternal God. You know, when you are serving in in the youth work and you're kind of discipling the next generation, you are a mirror image of he is a father. He cares about the next generation. He is laying his life down. It's more than just getting a job done. You are declaring, this is what God is like. Most people will look in the mirror of your life to see what God's like. What will they see if they look at you? Second thing about serving we see is this. Serving says, this is my family because we always serve to what we feel we belong to. We we serve to what we feel we belong to. You know, it's actually not a hardship to serve people that you really love, is it? Actually, it's kind of, it's really normal. It, it's, it's, it's actually, you're quite well adjusted if you want to serve people that you love. It's easy. You, you serve the things that you, f- you have ownership of and that you belong to. And in fact, so often, serving is a route to you feeling like you belong. <laughs> that's, that's, it works the other way as well. And one of the great dangers in a church that gets bigger and bigger is that actually it's harder and harder to get volunteers to serve on teams. That is a fact. The bigger you get, the harder it is to fill teams with volunteers. And the reason for that is a psychological effect called the bystander effect. The bystander effect is that, just say for example, you were a witness of a crime and you were the only witness who saw the crime. You were the only one in the vicinity. The likelihood of you calling the police is very, very high because you are the only one witnessing the crime. If you witness the same crime with a hundred other people, you are far less likely to make the call to the police. Why? Because I'm sure someone else has already done it. That's called the bystander effect. And what happens is that we, when we see needs and we see areas to serve in, we think, wow, the church is so big. I'm sure someone will meet the need. Wow, well, we need five men for our older youth work. There are lots of men in this room this morning. And many of us men may be thinking, There's so many men in this church. I'm sure five of them will sign up this morning. I'm sure they will. And that's the bystander effect at work in your heart right now. Because you think there's a need, I'm sure someone else will meet it. You know, you walk past a, a bin that's overflowing with rubbish and you think, I'm sure someone will empty it. There's so many people here. You know, you you turn up and there's not many people on the hospitality team and you think, gosh, they're doing a really good job, but they look a bit stretched and they're frantically showing people around. I'm sure someone will help them, and then you go and take your seat. And that's the bystander effect at work. The bigger we get, the harder it is to actually get people to buy in. And one of the ways that we break that way of thinking is to understand this is our family. This is our family. We care about one another if that issue is affecting you and God's speaking to me about it, I'm just going to deal with it. I'm going to go and find a bin bag and I'm going to change that bin, even if it's not my responsibility, because that's what happens in family. You know, if you view the church as an organization, you won't serve because you don't really care what happens. But if you view this church as a family, you'll want to serve because you know I belong here. These are my people. I care about them. And, you know, if there's a mark on the floor that needs cleaning up, I care about that, Mark. I'm going to clean it up. You know, if that chair's wonky, I care about that chair. I'm going to straighten it up. Take responsibility. Because that's what happens in family. You know, I, I remember years ago, when I was in Newcastle, uh, we had this young guy, Ben, who was in our youth group. And he was kind of on the edge of things. And I wasn't even sure if he was even a believer. And I, I, but he was a really good drummer. And I remember saying to myself, would you come and join our worship team and come and be the drummer? And he's like, yeah, I'd love to. And so he, he came along and he started drumming and he was really good drumming, and He was getting better and better. And within six months of serving on that team, he gave his life to Jesus. And and, and he felt like he belonged in family just because he took a step forward and decided, I'm going to serve. And that's sometimes what happens. You serve, you believe, and then you belong. And if you're here and you, maybe you're struggling, you feel like maybe, i oh, I just feel like a bit of a face in a crowd and, I'm struggling to make friendships, and there's so many people. A great way for you to feel like you belong is to start with serving. It's like, where are the needs? I'm just going to chip in. I'm going to give what I can, because sometimes that is the root to you feeling like you're part of family. Thirdly, serving breaks the curse of self-entitlement and delivers us from the tyranny of selfishness. Hallelujah. (laughs) Hallelujah. How many of you know right now in our culture, there is an epidemic of selfishness and self-centeredness. We have never lived in such a narcissistic culture as we do today. You know, you you can build whole website profiles about yourself and nobody bats an eyelid because that's just established practice. It's it's me, 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 the culture of look at me, look at me. You know, I remember being on holiday last summer and I'm just watching this guy, we were in this nice location, but he looked like death warmed up. He just looked so grumpy. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen Kevin the Teenager on Harry Enfield. Where he was like, <coughs> he was like that. I mean, just you know, he just looked unhappy with life in general. You know, just scowling and moody, and you could feel the vibes coming off him. And then he kind of whipped out his phone and suddenly put on this smile. <laughs> nice background. Yeah, smile, cheese. Took a picture of himself. Put the phone back in his pocket and went back to scowling. <laughs> I thought, that is just, that's just bizarre behavior, isn't it? It's just bizarre because what's happening? He's saying, I want to put myself at the center of the universe. I want to project the most presentable, happy, well-natured presentation of me to the world so they think I'm brilliant. And that's the culture that we live in. It's self-obsessed. 2 Timothy 3.2 says this, There will be terrible times in the last days because people will be lovers of themselves. If you put yourself at the center of the universe, you are in for a world of pain, my friend. Because you are not made to live for yourself, but someone greater than yourself. And the greatest moments in life are the moments of self-forgetfulness. Where your eyes get off your own stuff and you lift your eyes to Jesus. And I just want to encourage you, can we please start a revolution against self-centeredness? You know, I I would suggest to you, if you are in a marriage right now, and you're struggling, start a revolution against self-centeredness. Self-centeredness is one of the biggest killers of marriages that I've ever come across. Where each party demands their own rights. As soon as you start demanding your own rights, you are on a slippery path. Because scripture says you are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Successful marriage is based on giving, not receiving. That's how it works. Husbands, lay down your life for your wife as Christ laid down his life. That's how it works. Wives, submit to your husband out of reverence for the Lord. That's how it works. Submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. Start a revolution against self-centeredness steve sojourn says this we love and care for others because that is normal behavior for people who are filled with the spirit we are christians christ was the ultimate servant we can't help but serve because the spirit of the servant has filled our hearts and when we serve we are just being who we naturally are yeah. i love that when you serve you're being truly yourself and then fourthly serving as a pathway to life transformation especially your own if, if you want to change, lay your life down for other people. Now, sometimes the, the very best way of self-improvement is not necessarily to join a training class, although those, those can be good, but it's to serve. How are you gonna change? Lay your life down for somebody else. And you will find not only do you see lives change around you, but you will change yourself in the process. And that is my, ex- my experience throughout my whole life. Every area that I've served in, I always feel like I've grown more than I've actually given. Now, I remember when we first got asked to take on youth work in Newcastle, And uh, it was in the same month we bought our first home, had our first child and I got my first proper job and then we were asked to take on the youth work and we thought that sounds like a really wise idea, let's do it. And so we did, and we started leading the youth work on Friday nights, and I would get back after an hour commute, and I'd be dog-tired, and often our conversation would be, I just don't know if I've got enough energy to go and disciple young people. But off we'd go out the door, and we'd give our best, and we'd disciple, and we'd love, and we'd train, and that kind of, that moment, you know, it started as a decision to serve, but it ended in life transformation for us. Yeah. We changed. <laughs> I, I became more humble. I became more sacrificial. I became more like Jesus because I gave to people, particularly when I didn't feel like it. And we saw the privilege of seeing life change all over the place. I mean, I remember one young man. I saw him every every week, every uh, Wednesday for ten weeks, and I was trying to get him to believe in Jesus. And for 10 weeks, I failed. I tried every trick on the book, and he just couldn't get over the line. He just couldn't believe in Jesus. And in the end, in desperation, I showed him a video of a man who got raised from the dead. And he gave his life to Jesus on week 10. I I remember driving home, just my fist out of the window, going, yes, Jesus, this is amazing. You know, and I married many of those guys. I discipled many of those guys. And that's a joy, but in the process, I got changed you want to change you want to grow serve someone else serve someone else that's how it works and then we'll finish with this thought the other thing that i think the disciples got wrong and hadn't yet seen was the nature of faith and religion itself and of course the idea of serving is not unique to christianity many different faiths have serving actually right at the core what's different about christianity Well, it's this, at the core of our message is not you come and work for God, but is that God has come and worked for you. In this passage, Jesus says, the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve. In other words, the only way that you get into the kingdom is to humble yourself and say, Jesus, I need you to serve me. And that's the gospel, that's grace. One John says, This is love, not that you first loved him, but that he first loved you. You know, Jesus comes to Simon Peter and starts washing his feet. And Simon Peter's like, stop it, stop serving me. I should be serving you. Jesus says, Unless you let me wash your feet, you can have nothing to do with me. So Peter says, <laughs> Wash all of me, not just my feet. <laughs> What's the point? The only way into the kingdom is to humble yourself and realize that you cannot get yourself into heaven. You cannot atone for your own sin. You cannot sort out your own mess. You need a savior who's come to serve in your place, who's come to work in your place, who gave his life as a ransom for many. He is the ultimate suffering servant who loves every one of you so much.